Welcome to this talk podcast special, Antisemitism, Labour and Beyond. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined today by Graham Perry, a former solicitor, commercial arbitrator, Justice of the Peace, LBC radio host and somebody who today works as an anti-Semitism awareness trainer. The recent report by the Equality and Human Rights Commission into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party delivered a damning verdict on Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. The EHRC found Labour breached the Equality Act in two cases when its agents were engaged in committing unlawful harassment, including using anti-Semitic tropes and suggesting that complaints of anti-Semitism were fake or smears. The first referred to Ken Livingston, the former Mayor of London, and the second concerned Pam Bromley, a Labour councillor in Rossendale, Lancashire. A further 18 more borderline harassment cases were identified in the sample of 70 studied by the EHRC, and the watchdog also indicated relations with Labour were not always smooth during the investigation. Our discussion then turns to the wider problem of anti-Semitism in British politics and wider society. Welsh nationalist party Plaid Cymru was co-founded by playwright Saunders Lewis, whose work and letters contain many examples of anti-Semitism. Lewis is still widely revered by the Welsh nationalist community, and the party was recently engulfed in controversy after activist Saha Al-Faifi, who has a long track record of anti-Semitism, was readmitted to the party and will stand as a candidate in the next year's elections to the Welsh Parliament. Beyond politics, how prevalent is anti-Semitism in wider society? Graham and I discussed the issue of anti-Semitism in institutions such as golf clubs. In this age where roads and concert venues named after slave traders are being renamed, is it right that prominent anti-Semites such as Roald Dahl are honoured with public monuments in their name? Roald Dahl Place is less than a minute's walk from the Welsh Parliament building. This promises to be a fascinating discussion. Do stay with us. Graham, thank you for joining us today. Can you begin by telling us a little bit more about your background as a Labour supporter and as an anti-Semitism trainer? Yes, uh, Marcus, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to speak to you. Um, my own background, well, it's a family background. It's not an unusual story. Um, a lot of the Jewish people of my age, and I'm more advanced now than I was 10 years ago when I was 65, uh, <laughs> I, um, I, my, my experiences grew out of my parents' East End experiences pre-war. That's what happened for a lot of Jewish people. A lot of Jews were radicalized when Mosley started beating up Jews on the streets of Hackney and Stepney, which is where my parents came from. Mm -hmm. This radicalized my parents very much. And my father in particular became very involved on the left. At the time, the party that offered the best leadership to fight against Mosley was the Communist Party, and a lot of Jews joined the Communist Party, not necessarily because they believed in communism, um, but because they realized that when it came to taking action to stop Mosley and his bully boys, the Communist Party was doing more training and more activity, and that's why a lot of people gravitated towards the pre-war. After the war, it changed. Things became complicated with Israel, and a lot of people who joined the party left the party. There was also issues of Hungary, etc. But my left-wing introductions was there throughout my life. And I was always on the left. We took the Daily Worker at home to give us a left bias, together with the Daily Express and the Times. 
and my politics were very much left of center. I did all the Marston marches, I joined the Labour Party, I was very active on the anti-Vietnam War front, and of course, bringing it up to date, um, very much involved in the fight against the re reviving anti-Semitism in the UK. So I feel there's a consistency with my journey. Yes, and, and you were suspended by the Jewish Labour movement in July 2019 for criticizing its decision to halt anti-Semitism training. Action was taken against you after details emerged of your plans to speak at a meeting of the Aberconwy Labour Party. And they were, I, my understanding is there was also an address there by Jewish Voice for Labour co-chair Leah Levine and the decision taken at JLM's last AGM on that year for members not to share platforms with the group. That was what I understand was at the heart of the controversy. But please tell us a little about who the Jewish Labour movement are, who Jewish Voice for Labour are, and the conflict between the two groups. What's it all about, please? Okay, I'll answer the question, but just one point, because it features in your brief introduction there. I never shared a platform with Jewish, Jewish Voice for Labour. That was one of the allegations, but it never happened, and I can explain exactly what did happen. Okay. Um, I've sympathised and identified with the overall general principles of the Jewish Labour movement all the way, and I was one of their speakers, one of their, if I can say it myself, a prominent speaker. I was always asked when there was a speaking engagement came up. They had a few speakers they went to, and I was one of the few that was regularly asked. And I, I was pleased to be asked. I got on well with them. Uh, what I didn't agree with was that when they decided to report the Labour Party to the, um, the, the uh, Equalities and Human Rights Commission, when they did that, they also turned their back on training with the constituencies. Now, for me, there were two different issues there. They were right to report the Labour Party to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. There's no question about that. Labour had, Party had gone the wrong way, and this was an opportunity to expose the Labour Party. I didn't disagree with that decision, but I could not understand then nor now why they were prepared to sacrifice the ongoing opportunity to speak directly to Labour Party members who had in their heads questions about what the issue of anti-Semitism was. Mm. So I continued to be asked to speak and I accepted invitations to speak and that caused the JLM to take harsh action against me. So in one sense, uh, Marcus, there's no fundamental difference between me and the ideology of JLM. I don't speak for JLM now because I can't, because I'm not a member of JLM. But if you listen to what I said and listen to what some of their other speakers uh, said, you would find it very difficult to find any fundamental difference. Well, you are a man of the left, as you've already explained, and you've been a supporter of JLM for a long time. How does it feel? Because you were suspended in July 2019. Does it fill you with sadness that you're no longer a part of that and you're not being allowed to be a part of that? I just like getting in front of Labour Party audiences. That's my, uh, that, that's my uh, enjoyment. I enjoy the challenge of going head to head, looking at an audience, dealing with the issues, not so much in a confrontational, angry way, um, but in a way which enables me step by step, a bit like taking the leaves off an artichoke, mm. step by step, you're gradually taking away from them their arguments which form the basis of their anti-Semitism. And you know, Marcus, when you look at an audience, a, a Jewish Labour a, a Labour Party audience, not a Jewish Labour Party, a constituency party audience, you've got a mixed bag there. Mm. 
you've got some people, as the Labour Party is a mixed bag, you've got people right to centre, left to centre, and then on the people on the left, you've got some on the far left and some who are in the mod more moderate left. So you've got a range of views and opinions. And my attitude is to put myself up and say, chaps, chapesses, ladies and gentlemen, I'm happy to answer any question. I don't mind dealing with some of the most sensitive subjects. I'll argue my ground and uh, you, you'll, you'll have to listen to me, but I don't want you to think there's nothing that you can't ask me. And I usually find that approach goes down well because it, it, it uh, discourages um, confrontation and angry debate, but it doesn't stop discussion of controversial issues. Well, I think that's a good approach, Graham, because it, it gets things out in the open and you don't change people's minds on things or educate them by telling them they can't say certain things. Get it out in the open. If there is a, a prejudice there, let's hear what it is and then we can deal with it and address what's gone on there. So I think your approach is the right one. Now, the Equality and Human Rights Commission report into the Labour Party and anti-Semitism in the Labour Party came out a few weeks ago. It was extraordinary that it was ever commissioned in the first place. So please remind us of how the report came about. Uh, there, there was um, growing complaints amongst the Jewish community that there was a revival under the guise of anti-Zionism, actually of anti-Semitism. And this was permeating the Labour Party, not the length and breadth of the Labour Party. I mean, I've spoken, as I said to you, to a number of branches. And I remember, for example, going to the Bulldog Labour Party. And by and large, the people there didn't have any real understanding of the problems that were within the party. Mm -hmm. So I think, I don't want to say this is confined to a few branches. It's not, it's bigger and wider than that, but it's not a factor which is uppermost in the minds of each and every Labour Party branch. For some of them, it's passed them by. But where it hasn't passed them by, we found there was increasing criticism. Jewish people were being made to feel uncomfortable because of the nature in which the criticisms in particular of Israel, which you can make, there are quite legitimate grounds to criticize Israel, but the way in which they were made lapsed quickly into the traditional anti-Semitic tropes. Jews are good at money. Jews control the world, etc., etc. Now, if you're Jewish and you're left and you've been around the Labour Party for a while, you have an instinctive feel for it. You, 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 you know these things, uh, Marcus. But the but many people, uh, this is something where they're not quite aware of the politics of it. But when you see the kind of problem that popped up with Maxine Peake and Rebecca Long Bailey. Um, that was an example of it, even though that was quite concealed and hidden. It popped up in an article which wasn't principally about Israel or Jewish issues, but it came up because reference was made to the death of Mr. Floyd uh, at the hands of American police, who it was said had been trained by Israel. It was a kind of gratuitous insult about Israel, and that widens and broadens now, there's a lot of history I could talk about, about the issue of uh, uh, anti-Semitism and Israel, because it's a very big issue. But if you ask me what has triggered this question of reporting matters to the, um, uh, the, the, the commission, it was principally because there was a perception and a correct perception that anti-Semitism was raising its head again. And it was doing it within, and I say this with a bit of emotion, our party. 
And the yeah. Labour Party was the one party that's always identified itself with the rights of the individual, the, the, the minority group standing up for people. And yeah. here we are fighting ourselves against anti-Semitism. So it really upset a lot of people. Yeah, and that's understandable for the reasons you just said. Now, the report was released on Thursday, the 29th of October. It's 130 pages long. They found two instances where Labour had breached the Equality Act, and they made a number of other complaints, if you like, as well, about the way the Labour Party had behaved. I'll tell you a little bit now, Graham, about my own experiences of anti-Semitism on the left and in the Labour Party in particular. It came... I, I was naively perhaps thought that all anti-Semitism had largely been confined to history in this country until an incident that occurred around about five years ago. Now, I am not a Labour supporter, but I was involved in a, a Twitter spat, a very minor Twitter spat with somebody hiding behind a pseudonym, as is very often the way. And Ed Miliband was Labour leader at the time, and I criticised one of his policies. I can't remember which, and it's not important now anyway. And um, I said, well, I don't really think Ed Miliband's got the answers to this, do you? And this person replied to me, oh, no, I've got no time for the Jew Miliband, he replied. Ooh. And I remember thinking, yeah, I thought, whoa, what's going on here? Now, at the time, I'll be perfectly honest, I was, I was barely aware, if at all, that Ed Miliband was even Jewish. It was not something that was prominent at that time. This was before all the stuff about his father and his father's history had, had come to prominence. And I thought, whoa, they, they, you know, I thought this thing was something of the past. And then it, it occurred to me, hang on there is a significant issue here with anti-Semitism. I would say that the rise, particularly of Twitter, in the middle part of the last decade, coincided with anti-Semitism bubbling, bubbling up again, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I would briefly just inject at this stage, I do quite a lot on social media as an Arsenal fan, and I've discovered quite a following, and a lot of people just exchange messages about my football club but i broaden it and widen it to social issues and you quickly realize that the kind of pr um, freedoms that were abused when the referendum took place in 2016 has led to an abuse of freedom by encouraging the anonymous insult of minority groups of which the jews are one particular group and there is an ease of insult and hate, which is becoming the norm in the UK on a widespread level. I don't think people realize it's Facebook and it's these other media giants have facilitated the opportunity for people to work in a different way from that that they worked in, in say, the 1950s and the 1960s. And then yeah. you add in this question of um, Jews and a lot of people have... Uh, a prejudice against Jews uh, because of their misunderstanding of Jewish history, whether it starts with the killing of Christ, whether it starts with a misunderstanding about how the Jews were barred from any profession except that of money lending in the, I'm talking about the 8th, 9th, 10th century. Mm. Uh, and it went on and on today and the tropes that developed around Shylock and Fagin, etc., etc. But this came out again uh, in the presence, in, in the possession of the far left, who used opportunities to make comments similar to the one they made to you, Miliband the Jew. Now, you know, there's a lot of soft anti-Semitism that goes on that people pick up on. I happened to see an article recently by Camilla Long, who was reviewing a book on 
Barbara Emil, the famous wife of Conrad Black. Not a very attractive person, my view, Barbara Emil. Mm. But the description that Camilla Long gave to uh, um, uh, 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 Barbara Emil carried nasty tones of anti-Semitism. I took it up with the Sunday Times. I just wanted to make the protest. I didn't get very far. But there are often in day-to-day -day, uh, conversations the occasions when prejudice is expressed. But don't let's get too Jewish about this. Think how much worse it is if you're a West Indian who came over with Windrush, or if you're somebody who who lives in who used to live in Smethwick in in in, in the Midlands. I, I think I think the point you make there is an important one, and I think what uh, particularly the rise of Twitter. I remember in the early part of the last decade, from about 2010 to about 2014, Twitter was a bit of a laugh. You could engage with other football fans or, or just send silly messages, light-hearted stuff. I would say from around about the time of the Scottish independence referendum of 2014, it developed far more sinister tones where we had the rise of the cyber Nats harassing people who didn't agree with them. Then in the lead up to the 2015 general election, we had that incident with the Jew Miller band I just mentioned. And it, it occurred to me then that Twitter was changing. Uh, the lead up to the referendum on EU membership in 2016, the election of Donald Trump the same year, um, we had a general election in this country in 2017 and another in 2019. And with all of these movements, we have seen the rise of nasty mobs on Twitter. And what it allows people to do is say the most abhorrent, abhorrent things, often from behind a pseudonym, that they would never dare say to your face. And I think what's happened is that Twitter has completely lost control of its platform. And I think the only way around this if Twitter has got any sense, if you register for a Twitter account, you should have to use your real name and include some verifiable ID when you sign up. So if the police or the authorities get involved, you're easily identifiable. Now, Twitter, you know, it's run from Silicon Valley in California somewhere, I'm guessing. I find their complaints procedure absolutely useless most of the time, quite frankly, and entirely inconsistent. But I think a, a very big part of this now, which would help, is if the House of Commons passed a very simple piece of legislation that every time police have to get involved and, and the legal system gets involved, they, can, they have the power to send Twitter a bill for the costs involved to do, of getting involved in this. I think that would be a very good first step. Um, but it is clear now that, that Twitter, it's a cesspit, let's be honest. Yes, but I, I would say one thing about it, that the fight back against um, this racism and this anti-Jewish prejudice is facilitated in part by the improvement in communications like uh, Twitter, like uh, email, etc. Um, the opportunity to engage very easily with a large number of people by pressing a button and sharing experiences, I think that's helped to solidify the reaction on the part of the Jewish community to what they perceive as being anti-racial, the growth of anti-Semitism. Anti I'm very pleased about it. The Jews have, in my opinion, have acted responsibly and sensibly, even if you read the comments in the papers today by the Jewish leadership, including the leadership of the JLM, Katz and others, that their comments are, are sensible mm -hmm. and they're not becoming wild. They're not becoming irresponsible. They're not insulting for the sake of insulting. They've got a problem with Corbyn and Corbyn has created his own problem and the Jews are not going to go away. If I can say one other thing before we, we leave this point, uh, Marcus, the important point now is that the commission is not going to go away. The Equality and Human Rights Commission came to this clean, fresh, 
looked at the evidence and reached very stunning conclusions. And mm. they are now setting the, 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 the trend. They are now saying to the Labour Party, you've got until the 10th of December to come back to us. I think this isn't just a matter of JLM and a few Jews. This is now a matter of a significant um, legislative statute or created organisation who is now watching the activities of the Labour Party and it's going to make it harder for people like Corbyn and others to get away with what they were doing previously. Well, let's look in more detail then about what the EHRC said. Um, and that Labour breached the Equality Act in two cases when its agents were engaged in committing unlawful harassment, including using anti-Semitic tropes and suggesting that complaints of anti-Semitism were fake or smears. That is how the EHRC phrased it. The first yeah. of those two instances referred to the former mayor of London, Ken Livingston. He sought to defend the Labour MP, Naz Shah, who had reposted a Facebook image suggesting that Israel be relocated to the United States. At the time, Livingston was a member of Labour's National Executive Committee, and so, according to the EHRC, was an agent of the party. The EHRC said, Ken Livingston repeatedly denied that these posts were anti-Semitic. In his denial, Ken Livingston alleged that scrutiny of Naz Shah's conduct was part of a smear campaign by the Israel lobby to stigmatize critics of Israel as anti-Semitic, and was intended to undermine and disrupt the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn MP. In conclusion, the EHRC said Shah's comments went beyond legitimate criticism of the Israeli government and were not protected by rights to free, free expression. The EHRC said that the emails show many examples of interference in Livingston's case. In April 2018, two years after his original comments, members of the Labour of the party's governance and legal unit, the GLU, sought the green light from staff at the leader's office to conduct a disciplinary interview with the former mayor. The leader's office staff agreed that there was no option but to authorize the interview. One staff member, Laura Murray, commented, we have let the Ken case drag on for far too long already and if GLU leak to the press that we have held up the investigation of him, it will look beyond awful. Ken Livingston had been suspended from the party in April 2016. He resigned in May 2018 before the internal investigation against him concluded. We'll come on to the second case in a few moments, Graham. But first of all, what was your reaction to a man of Ken Livingston's status in the party having been found to have behaved in such a way? This is a man who has been involved in London politics since the 1970s. He's a former head of the Greater London Council. He was a member of Parliament for a period. Then he became the first mayor of London, where he served two terms, one as an independent mayor, the second as Labour's candidate. We remember the, the dispute with Frank Dobson and the Blair people in the Labour Party at the time. He's very well known nationally on chat shows. And like yourself, he's a former presenter on LBC Radio, among other things. So what was your reaction to a man of Mr. Livingston's status having this found against him in this way by the commission? Well, I don't think it's a question of Mr. Livingston's status. It's Mr. Livingston's politics. And I have no illusions about uh, Ken, Ken Livingston. I, I, I think he's a very astute operator who believes he knows he can how to handle himself on this issue. And he's come unstuck. And I'm pleased 
that the Commission went so as far as they did on the Livingston issue, because he became a kind of symbol of criticism of uh, Israel and Jewish issues, which summoned up the greatest fears amongst the Jewish community because they did not believe him. Mm. They didn't believe, there are, let me see what, say what I mean here. You, you, you know uh, from the times we've spoken before, I personally do not care for Israel's policy in the occupied territories. And I've got great reservations about what they do in Gaza. Uh, and I don't think I'm alone on that. There's plenty of other people who have got reservations about Israel. Well, that's not a surprise. Israel is a country and all countries have political issues that are right and wrong. But Israel is not a racist state. It's not an apartheid state. And it doesn't oppress the Palestinians as such. It's got differences with the Palestinians and the Palestinians have lost quite a bit as a result of the disputes that started back in 1917 and even earlier. I don't want to get onto that too quickly because that'll eat, eat up all the time that we've got. But people have known that someone like Livingston has expressed himself in anti-Zionist terms. For example, he, he made a great big thing of the fact that Jews had even negotiated with Hitler as if to smear the whole Jewish population and to undo the significance of the six million that died in the Holocaust. We know where Livingston is coming from. We're pleased, I say we collectively, are pleased that the commission also realized where Livingston's coming from. So make no mistake, I'm not one of those that in any way feels awkward or uncomfortable that a man of his stature has been exposed. It's right that he should. And I think more of that is going to take place over the next few years because the Jewish labor movement and the Jewish uh, population generally here in the UK has got the bit between their teeth with a vengeance and they're not going to go quiet now. And people who want to make take on a fight on the issue of anti-Semitism now know that they're going to have a real fight on their hands because the, the Jewish community is not going to sit back quietly as they've done maybe in the past. They're going well, to go forward on all four. Well, one, the thing that concerns me about Ken Livingston is that you can look at his track record going back many, many years, even days before I was born, and there was the struggle in the London Labour Party in the early 1980s where the hard left took over and Ken Livingston was at the forefront of that. However, what I would say, Graham, is that even well before the time that Jeremy Corbyn became leader, um, Ken Livingston made a series of unsavory comments periodically over the decades in relation to anti-Semitism and across the boundary between legitimate criticism of the Israeli government and, um, and Jewish people in general. He crossed that line many, many times. And, and this, this has been something that people have been aware of for a long time. Do you think the Labour Party should have acted far sooner on Ken Livingston? Yes, um, I'm quite a, a, a clear about a, a lot of this. But, you know, when is the right time to lance the boil? When is the right time to make an issue of something? There is a period, a process that's undergone here and it's been simmering. But I don't think this was a matter of judgment that the Jewish community said, we'll leave it for a year or two or three. We'll, we'll just wait to see what happens. Mm. I think it was a matter of this issue becoming... A, a real top issue. And it didn't become that until Corbyn took over. 
they could deal with Livingstone, even when he was mayor of London, because there's no question Livingstone did some good things as mayor of London. We can't pretend that because somebody's an anti-Semite, everything they do in office is terrible. I don't say that, and I don't pretend that. But I don't think that for Jewish people, Livingstone can ever be seen other than as a person who has facilitated the growth of anti-Semitism. That will be how he's seen by the Jewish community, and that's quite right. He's done. He's been the author of his own problems, so that's not a difficulty. And now you have the situation with Corbyn, who I've met, McDonnell, I've met individually, nice people, but whose politics on this issue has exposed them as being very dilatory, being very slow, and also inactive. Every time you, speak, you hear Corbyn speak, he will always say, I'm against racism, I'm against anti-Semitism. But when you then look at this report and see how they handled investigations, how there was interference by his office, how there were, and the, the Panorama program in particular, which was so revealing and so educational, you realize that the uh, fight is going to continue. I, I'm... I, I'm on the left of the Labour Party. Uh, I'm a great fan of Starmer and I hope he succeeds. But I am very worried that the position of the far left within the Labour Party will make it very difficult for Starmer to be elected as Prime Minister. My worry is that the victor of all of this that's going on with Labour Party and anti-Semitism is Boris Johnson. And that fills me with, with, with great sadness. Well, I want to go back to the issue of Ken Livingstone here, because let's think back to the events when the post of Mayor of London first came about. And there was that dispute where Ken Livingstone was uh, expelled from the Labour Party for a period over the dispute about Frank Dobson, the late Frank Dobson becoming Labour's candidate in the first mayoral elections. Ken Livingstone won that election as an independent candidate. He served his first four years. And towards the end of that term, he was allowed back into the Labour Party by the Blair and Brown, well, Blair was leader, Brown was chancellor at the time. And they concluded that, look, if we don't let Ken Livingstone in, in again and we put up a different candidate, Ken Livingstone is going to win a second term as an independent. And the reality was, as you outlined there, that actually for during that four-year period, he followed a largely moderate programme of government in London. The changes he made to public transport, making uh, affordable public transport available to people, and he made a number of other changes in London in that period. And if, sure enough, as Labour candidate, then in that second mayoral election, he won, and he won again comfortably. However, what I would say, Graham, is that even in those days, although Ken Livingstone followed that moderate programme um, of policies during his four years as an independent mayor of London, and again in the following four years as Labour mayor of London, even during those four years where he was independent and he was outside the Labour Party, people knew his history. People inside Labour knew about not only his track record of saying anti-Semitic things and the things he had said about Israel, not just the Israeli government, but the state of Israel, but his links to some pretty extreme characters in the Islamic faith as well, some of whom were his guests of honour. Was it wise for Tony Blair and the people who were in charge of the Labour Party at that time to allow Ken Livingstone back in and be Labour's candidate as Mayor of London in the second London mayoral elections in the mid-2000s? Well, looking back, it's easy to make a number of judgments. Um, and I'll come back to this in a second. But for me, the turning point was the election of Corbyn and the influx into the Labour Party 
with a far simple uh, reduced membership fee of a lot of people on the far left. And the numbers were incredible. The character of the Labour Party changed with the election of Corbyn. Mm. Now, you go back to Livingston, the Labour Party was different. The Labour Party of Blair and Brown was not the Labour Party of Starmer. Starmer has a much uh, 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 more difficult inheritance than, than Blair and uh, Brown. Blair and Brown spoke up. They were left-wing. They could be critical of Israel, but they were friends of, of, of uh, the Jewish community. And they, they had a lot of supporters amongst the, 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 the Jewish population. It changed when Corbyn became, took over. The whole mood, the whole atmosphere, the far left, and I'm thinking about momentum, and I'm thinking about the people who are active within the Labour Party now, who fill me with uh, anxiety about the future, are the people who are driving this um, re, 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 hoped for redemption of Corbyn. Look at the speed with which they dealt with this particular question of readmitting him to the party and full mm. marks to Starmer for refusing to admit, to admit him to the parliamentary Labour Party. Mm. I mean, this whole report, which I've got here in front of me, is full of the examples of delay in mm. looking into investigation. And sadly, when Chakrabarti did her report, it was a terrible report because she hadn't done her homework. She, whether she was told not to do her homework, but it worked as a kind of whitewash. It mm. eliminated, it prettified the Labour Party. And that so was particularly me, that was particularly turning... disappointing, wasn't it? Because Chakrabarti, you look at her track record when she was in charge of Liberty, and you look at what she's done since. It is disappointing that that report went the way it did. Um, I want to talk a little bit now, if I may, about the second case and that uh, in the EHRC's findings, and that relates to Pam Bromley, a Labour councillor in Rossendale in Lancashire. And she made numerous statements on Facebook between April 2018 and December 2019 that the EHRC said amounted to unwarranted, unwanted conduct related to Jewish ethnicity and had the effect of harassing Labour Party members. On the 15th of December last year, she posted on Facebook about Jeremy Corbyn. My major criticism of him, she said, is failure to repel the fake accusations of anti-Semitism in the LP, the Labour Party, may not be repeated as the accusations may probably now magically disappear. Now capitalism has got what it wanted. And for that, Bromley who had been suspended from the Labour Party in April 2018, was expelled by Labour in February 2020. And that was the second um, upheld complaint, if you like, by the EHRC, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was. And um, this is a very revealing expose by the, by, by, by the Commission. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. You're a popular man, Graham. We, we know that. We're lucky to have you. I hope so they carry don't, on. <laughs> I, hope they, I hope they don't try again. Um, <laughs> carry but, on. Um, it, it was right. You know, the Commission says in each of the case summaries, we were satisfied that the anti-Semitic conduct had the effect of contributing to violating the dignity of a member or prospective member or contributing or to creating an intimidating, listen to the words, intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating, or offensive environment for them. Mm. Full marks to the commission for having the guts and the courage 
to say what a lot of Jewish people knew, but found wasn't being expressed by the traditional forums of public opinion. Mm. And yet here is the commission who have only investigated one other body before the police, never investigated a political party, and must have been a little anxious about being placed in this position. But having been asked by the community to do it, and the community invoked some very good brains to prepare the case for them, you know, Wagner and uh, uh, Fulter and Spitz. These are people who, who know, knew how to handle the case for the Jewish community to the, e, the commission. The commission found itself convinced by the arguments that were being made. These mm -hmm. weren't nutty Jews. These mm -hmm. weren't a bunch of nutty Jews who were just angry on the spur of the moment. This is something that was built up over a period of time, but they found the way to present a very convincing and persuasive case. So the Bromley case, the Livingston case, they've set it out in great detail. And it makes the argument that things are rotten in the Labour Party. And full marks to Starmer, who's presented with really big difficulties. He wants, he knows what he has to do with the Labour Party. He has to make it electable, but how is he going to make it electable when he's got around him so many bad people in the constituency Labour Party? Well, we're going to move on to that in a moment, but okay. there's, a, there's, okay. a few, there's a few other points I want to raise in relation to the EHRC's findings, because they are rather damning when you read the report. And the EHRC said that of the 70 complaints of anti-Semitism it investigated, the vast majority, 59, concerned social media. We're back to where we were a minute ago, I'm afraid. Labour also had a policy, although it was applied inconsistently, of not investigating complaints about likes or shares of anti-Semitic content on social media until mid-2018. That's what the report said. That meant repeated sharing of anti-Semitic material could have escaped investigation, even where it could have amounted to a breach of the party's conduct rule or unlawful harassment or discrimination. Labour has now acknowledged that its policy was wrong, the EHRC added. That's pretty damning stuff. Why did it take Corbyn and the Labour leadership that was there at the time so long to get a grasp of the scale of the problem on social media? And if you want to, you can answer that in the context of what I said earlier on about Miliband, which dates back to 2015. Well, I think the Labour Party under Miliband um, member of a Jewish community, not a religious Jew as such, but somebody who's always identified himself as a Jew. And I happen to remember back in 1968, when students were up in arms at the universities, his father was one of the principal lecturers to us at the LSE. So I, I know the Millibands well, and he was very much on the left. Mm. But it, this is coming back to Corbyn, and a refusal to take seriously the allegations that the Labour Party could in any way be racist. This was his point of view. This was Corbyn's point of view. We are the Labour Party. We fight against racism. How could we be anti-Semitic? Hmm. And it, it, it persuaded a lot of people uh, in his uh, growing numbers of influence that what Corbyn was doing and saying uh, was legitimate and reasonable. But remember that Corbyn came with history, links with Hamas, links with Hezbollah, he was part of that group that grew out of New Left Review, who took over the left-wing movement 
and instead of attaching themselves with working class movements, they attached themselves to anti-imperialist movements. Hmm. And I don't say this so much about Corbyn, but the actions in relation to South Africa, Algeria, and of course Vietnam were immensely successful. Hmm. And Palestine was all tagged onto it because there was no real Palestine issue in the 50s. It became an issue in the 60s when the anti-imperialist struggle replaced the struggle of the working class in European countries. I'm going off target just a little, but if you're looking for a background to the development within the Labour Party, there's two important examples. One is what I've just said about the way in which the left attached itself to anti-imperialist struggles of the third world. And um, the, 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 the other point was the way in which Zionism and anti-Semitism became interchangeable. Of course. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand that point, but they were quite specific, the EHRC, in relation to social media. Now, where I think you've got a, a valid point here is that obviously we've all heard Jeremy Corbyn say a number of times that, oh, yes, we have no place for racism, no place for anti-Semitism. And I think what that allowed was a certain, uh, particularly with the influx uh, of into the Labour Party of Corbynistas during that period of time, the entryism, if you like, was that they said, okay, Jeremy Corbyn's made his stance on this clear. Therefore, anyone who says we're still anti-Semitic, they must be part of the Israeli lobby, so to speak. And I've heard that expression used a number of times. Anyone who says um, that we're still anti-Semitic after what Corbyn has said is part of the Israel lobby. And I think that they, that was their defense mechanism against that whereas really they should have been looking inwards at their own attitudes and their own problems and instances of anti-semitism which the ehrc has been clear about but they didn't do that did they it's useful again to go back to the report itself and itemize the the conduct that was complained of Mm. um diminishing the significance of the holocaust support for hitler comparing israelis to hitler a witch hunt in the Labour Party, Info- reference conspiracies about the Rothschilds and Jewish power, blame Jewish people for the anti-Semitism crisis, use of the term Zio, Z-I-O, as an anti-Semitic term, and then the one that really upset so many Jews, the accusation that British Jews had greater loyalty to Israel than to Britain. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is also the time, and I've got to be fair about this, this was a time when the Israel, the right wing had become the government of Israel. And Israel did things that were un- un- very, very unacceptable. I'm talking about the occupied territories and to a lesser extent Gaza as well. So the right in Israel played into the hands of the left in the UK. Mm. But it was the failure of, uh, whereas Blair and Brown had stood up to it in that period, the entryism that you referred to, the cheap membership, the influx of large numbers sustained Corbyn in his fight for the leadership of the party and has enabled him to control the policies of the Labour Party, which have now become unstuck. Because, not because he's been identified in terms of this report, more, more so because he failed in the last election so thunderingly badly. Corbyn himself was disgraced. So I, I just think this whole process has politicized a lot of people, including myself, the speed with which it's happened, the way in which Corbyn and the others have reacted. But more importantly, you've got a very steely determination amongst the Jewish community who for years had to put up with the argument 
that the Holocaust never happened. Mm. And when you talk about the Holocaust, just let me say this point, because it's something which is not always understood. But there is hardly a family that escapes the Holocaust. Now, I'm not putting myself center stage at all, and I'm not looking for sympathy. But I know that my father's cousins and uncles all perished in the Warsaw Ghetto. I never knew them. I never met them. I've seen some photos. But I have a link. They died in Poland because they were Jewish. I'm Jewish. That helps to politicize me. And when people came along and denied that there was even a Holocaust, and we had trials to dispute this, um, if you remember, not so long ago, um, David Irving, Irving in particular, yeah. Yeah. David Irving in particular, this, this, this created the greatest fears. You may have seen him recently, the TV programs with Robert Rinder, where he went back, traced the family links back into the heart of the Holocaust. You can't watch those programs without ending up in tears. And it's not done to create emotion. It's done to teach you history. Mm. And the history hurts. Mm. Now, Jewish history is much more than the Holocaust, much more. And there's some good and bad in Jewish history. We must never be one-sided about it. We always have to take the wide view and the broad view. But Jews know anti-Semitism when they see it. And nothing will rouse the Jewish uh, uh, community here. That um, protest, was it in 2018 outside the Houses of Parliament? Yeah. Was, um, was, was, was absolutely mind-bending. It was incredible. So many people turned up with a deep-seated determination. They'd all experienced the Holocaust in one way or another, and it was not going to happen again. And that is what has emboldened the leadership of the Jewish community. There are some very, very good people. I'm not talking about Pollard and the editor of the JC, for whom I don't have a lot. But the people I mentioned before, Fulter, Weinberg, um, Spitz, people who led the case for the Jewish community against anti-Semitism to, to the commission, did a wonderful job in a very sound, methodical informed basis factually calculated and they persuaded the commission that what they were saying was true now i'm sorry i wandered off a bit yeah it, it's okay what, what i directly I, answered your question yeah what, what i what i wanted to say is those quotes you gave about the, the diminished the scale or the significance of the holocaust comparing israelis to hitler or the nazis references about the Rothschilds Jewish power and control, accusing British Jews of greater loyalty to Israel than Britain. That came under, in the EHRC report, they were, that was part of the 18 borderline harassment cases, as they put it, uh, which yeah. they identified in the sample of 70, which they studied. Um, but as they put it, typically there was not enough evidence to determine whether the Labour Party was legally responsible because, for example, the person was not an elected representative or a candidate. Now, they might not have been an elected representative or a candidate, but if they were a member of the party, a card-carrying member, paid their three pounds as part of the entryism, perhaps, surely that in itself is bad enough. Well, yes, I think this is an example of the Commission wanting to be sure that it was fair. The people that were in the dock were the leadership of the Labour Party, and I think they wanted to focus on that and the treatment of investigations by the leadership of the Labour Party. I think they were worried about being seen to veer a little off course and embrace each and every 
statement and expression of anti-Semitism. They had a target. The target was the Labour Party. Mm. And that was the target, not their target. That was the one that the complainants had identified. The JLM and the campaign against anti-Semitism said, this is a problem at the highest echelons of the Labour Party. And I think the commission quite properly decided not to go into a witch hunt against Jewish members, but to leave their, their case where it started with the leadership of the Labour Party as to what happened thereafter that's a political question for the Labour Party, and it's something that I think Starmer will deal with. He won't tolerate it. He's going to be brave. He's going to take action. He's going to stand up and be counted. And I think his statement this morning that he wasn't being railroaded into readmitting Corbyn to the parliamentary Labour Party will have encouraged a lot of Jewish people who would fear that at the first sign of protest, this movement would collapse on the contrary i think starmer is a man of integrity and he's going to stick it well where, where we're heading now in, in terms of the labor party we'll come on to that in just a moment's time but in terms of cooperation with labor the ehrc did say some interesting things the watchdog indicated that its relations with labor were not always smooth as it worked through this investigation from its formal beginning back in May 2019. It said that while Labour said it was keen to engage, the EHRC encountered a number of delays in receiving information. And they said that at times we were seriously concerned about the party's commitment to working with us and to dedicating enough resources to the matter. And they, they said it seemed to have resolved itself after a meeting with the former General Secretary, Jenny Formby, in November of last year. So Labour's attitude, even when the investigation was underway, and bear in mind Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell were still in the driving seat at this point, their attitude wasn't great, even as this investigation got underway. Oh, I think that's right. I think, I think all of us have been taken by surprise by the speed of events, Marcus. When you consider where we were six months ago, 12, 18 months ago, things have moved quickly. Hmm. And I think they've moved quickly because... The leadership of the Jewish community has handled itself sensibly, persistently, and in a very methodical way in its handling of its complaints. And mm. secondly, as I've said before today, that the commission itself responded by taking the complaints very seriously and going into them. This was a new experience for mm. Jenny Formby, Corbyn, and all the other members of the Labour Party. They were quite surprised. And I think all of us have been so pleasantly surprised that the response that has come about has been so good. And I don't sense amongst the leadership of the Jewish community, and I've, I've listened, I mean, I'm a great fan of Dave Rich, who wrote an excellent book on Zionism and the left, and his explanation and, and introduction to the problems of Corbynism and anti-Semitism really deserves reading by anybody who uh, wants to know more about the subject. Dave Rich is his name. Okay. Um, he, 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 he spoke yesterday uh, on a, um, one of these uh, events summarizing what had gone on, and he was one of the people that helped formulate the case. Hmm. Um, Adam Wagner is a well-known uh, young barrister, and also this fellow Gideon Falter, who I think, and this is a funny thing, I read his CV and found that he'd been involved in commercial property, almost fill, falls in to the kind of typical criticism of Jews. Oh, there you are, he's making money and property. Yeah. You hear Falter speak, 
and you'll realize you're dealing with a formidable individual, a young man, but with a lot of leadership skills. And I think their leadership at the top of this complaint has helped the Jewish community to be sensible and solid and not celebratory uh, in the uh, deal in, in, in the outcome from the, from, from, from the um, commission. But it needed good people within the commission. Now, I don't know any of these people within the commission. I don't know them by name at all. But having read the report, I was impressed with its simple, straightforward expression of views. And coming back to the question you really asked me, I think they wanted to make sure that they didn't appear to be on a witch hunt. Mm. And I think if anything didn't fall into place, it didn't quite reach their high standards, they were going to jettison it. They only wanted to deal with things that they thought had been seriously established. Mm -hmm. I want to talk now about Jeremy Corbyn himself. Now, the report was published at 10 a.m. on the morning of Thursday, the 29th of October. Around 30 minutes later, Mr. Corbyn put out a statement. He said that anti-Semitism was absolutely abhorrent and one anti-Semite is one too many in the party. But he then said the scale of the problem was so dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party, as well as by much of the media. And then after an, another 30 minutes or so, uh, Mr. Corbyn's successor as Labour leader, Sakia Starmer, made his own statement. He said that those who believed the issue of anti-Semitism in the party had been exaggerated were, or were a factional attack, were also part of the problem and should be nowhere near the Labour Party. Sakir had told the BBC the previous Friday that he had informed his predecessor of what he had planned to say and was deeply disappointed that Mr Corbyn's comments appeared to contradict his own statement. So back to that Thursday then, the 29th of October, and after the new leader's speech, Mr Corbyn sat down with a TV reporter to be asked about the EHRC's findings. He was questioned on Sakia's statement and whether he stood by his own response that the issue had been dramatically overstated. Mr. Corbyn repeated that one anti-Semite is too many, but then said the number of complaints again had been exaggerated. Six minutes after the clip aired, Labour released a statement saying they had suspended Mr. Corbyn from the party. It read, in light of his comments made today and his failure to retract them subsequently, the Labour Party has suspended Jeremy Corbyn's pending an investigation. And then a panel made up of members of the party's National Executive Committee met on Tuesday to decide whether to take further disciplinary action against him or to lift the suspension. After it decided to readmit Mr Corbyn, Sakia tweeted, and this was last night, that it had been a painful day for the Jewish community and those Labour members who have sought, fought so hard to tackle anti-Semitism. He added, Jeremy Corbyn's statement in response to the EHRC report was wrong and completely distracted from a report that identified unlawful conduct in our tackling of racism within the Labour Party. This should shame us all. Whatever decision was reached on Tuesday, Graham, criticism would have followed Mr Corbyn uh, he would, would have followed Labour. Mr Corbyn didn't apologise for suggesting the scale of anti-Semitism had been overstated by political opponents, which was the reason for his suspension. He simply clarified what he had meant. So reinstating him was bound to attract criticism from those cheered by his suspension. Not to have reinstated him would have most likely fueled a factional war between those supportive of the Starmer leadership and those, including some union leaders, who remain close to Mr Corbyn. 
And now this morning, although Mr. Corbyn was reinstated by the NEC, Mr. Uh, Sir Keir has, has said that Mr. Corbyn will not have the Labour whip reinstalled. Um, so he cannot sit as a Labour MP, even though he's now a party member once again. This is all very messy, isn't it? This is a fight waiting to happen. This is, this is how I see it. I, these events are the two sides drawing the lines for a future battle for the control of the Labour Party. I don't want to sound <laughs> demonic or dramatic. That's factually how I see it. Corbyn has been um, uh, moved to one side, but Corbynism is still very much in control. You could draw a parallel with Trump. Biden won the last election, he got 75 million votes. Trump came second with 70 million. Trump is going to be around for the next four years and he's going to run his election campaign if he runs himself or his daughter on the basis we was robbed. And Corbyn's explanation is damage limitation. This is being over-exaggerated. One anti-Semite is one too many, but this is being exaggerated. Who's doing the exaggerating? He doesn't say. It's the Jewish community. The, this is a battle that's been waiting to happen since the Labour Party was taken over by the far left. Momentum, Corbyn, this has been the situation for the last few years. There's a lot of good people on the far left, really good people who regard themselves as being sincere socialists want nothing more than a, a return of a, a of a labor government but amongst them there's trotskyites there's um extremists from the left that have always been on the left but who've never had the power and influence they've got now and I think this is a battle that is unfortunately going to be played out within the Labour Party and it's going to undermine Starmer's encouraging and praiseworthy efforts to make the Labour Party electable again. The Labour Party won't be electable until the, it is shown to have defeated the anti-Semitism within the party. And the more there's a fight back by Corbyn and the others, belittling the investigation, trying to minimize it, trying to suggest these are Jews with a persecution complex, the battle lines, I think, are drawn. And the hope has to be, if you're a member of the Labour Party, and even if you're just a UK patriot, you've got to hope that Starmer wins this very brave battle that he's decided to take on. He's got a very difficult time ahead of him, but I hope that he gets the support for the action he's taken so far. Now, I sound, as I said before, a little dramatic. I, I don't think I've misunderstood the situation. I can see, I've seen the tea leaves, I've felt the emotion, I've read all the papers, and I don't think the far left is going to go away. Uh, so I think we've, 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 we've got big problems. Uh, well, I, I would agree with you, Graham, and, and I think you've, you've got, as an outsider looking in, as somebody who is not a Labour supporter, I'm an outsider looking in, I, I think you've got three problems. The first is this. Bear in mind that you, okay, you've praised Sukhia Starmer a number of times, and you're entitled to say that, but it is worth bearing in mind that Sukhia was part of Jeremy Corbyn's team during quite a bit of his time as leader and did seek to get him elected as Prime Minister. I think that's point one. Point two is that the entryism we saw during the Corbyn years uh, has swollen the membership of the Labour Party and fundamentally changed its character. 
and to a large extent the Corbynista movement is a cult within the Labour Party and it's, it's far bigger than the one say Neil Kinnock encountered in the in form of militants in the 1980s okay Derek Hatton and all that which was tiny by comparison to the scale of what you've got now with the Corbynista cult the sort of yeah. mixture to a large extent it's, it's quite a middle class intellectual cult and there's a lot of left-wing students involved in it and the third is that the one place at the moment in the United Kingdom where Labour is in power is in Wales, here in Wales, where I live, where First Minister Mark Drakeford is a known supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. And therefore, that in itself, uh, it shows that the one place where Labour has won or may not win next year because we've had our, our elections to the Welsh Parliament suspended due to the pandemic. But looking ahead to next year, he may not win again. It, it, that's a little bit up in the air at the moment. But Labour is empowered in Wales. Um, and OK, for those that don't know, but the last time we had elections four years ago, it was Carwin Jones's moderate um, Labour that won 29 of the 60 seats and he, he came to an arrangement with the sole Liberal Democrat member to make it 30 out of 60 so he could form a government. Carwin Jones then stood down and was, and was replaced by Mark Drakeford. Mark Drakeford won the Welsh Labour leadership contest and Drakeford is a Corbynista. So the one place that Labour is in power is headed by a Corbynista. So the three problems are, one, Sir Keir Starmer did try to get Jeremy Corbyn elected and was part of his team for a long time. Two, the sheer scale of the entryism. And three, the one place where Labour is in power, they're head in the United Kingdom, they're led by a Corbynista. I think they are three very, very big problems, Graham. Okay, let me take the middle one, which I think is the biggest one. I'll come back to the other two for sure. The biggest problem, I think, is entryism. It's a question of numbers. There are many members of the Labour Party. They carry votes. Um, I've spoken to Jewish friends who've been to conference and found the whole atmosphere. So on the one hand, it's encouraging because it's old-fashioned Labour. On the other hand, there's that strong expression of far-left views as well. And I, I just feel my reading of it, and I'm, as I said, I've been a member since the uh, early 1980s, is that the Labour Party has suffered from entryism, and those numbers aren't going to go away. Just as Trump's not going to go away in America, I don't think Corbyn is going to go away. And I think the uh, problem for the Labour Party will be fought out over the next few years, and it'll be something that's taken to every individual constituency Labour Party as well. So I don't think these issues are going to go away. Now, uh, was Corbyn, was, was Starmer soft on Corbyn? Um, well, first of all, I think you'd have to hear, I'm not avoiding the issue, Starmer would have to express his own point of view about that. I think Starmer has always been regarded as somebody who was leadership material, um, partly because he came from the DPP, part that, rather than human rights lawyers as such, and he's a man seemingly of principle and integrity. And he wouldn't have felt strong enough to challenge Corbyn, even though he would have had doubts about where the Labour Party was going under Corbyn's leadership. Whether you can sustain an argument that Corbyn was soft on the investigation into anti-Semitism, I don't know. I haven't seen any of the facts. And I don't know whether that argument would carry any real strength. But at that time, remember, the attitude of the Labour Party uh, was, let's try and beat the Tories, let's try and win the next election, let's unite around Jeremy and see whether he can do it. 
And I don't think that in itself was a wrong policy. That was an attitude I had as well. That I fell out with some of my Jewish friends, I mean, only in argumentative terms, because they felt that we shouldn't have anything to do with the Labour Party whilst Corbyn was in control. My attitude was no. I looked at the alternative, and you may not agree with me on this, Marcus. I looked at Johnson and I looked at the way the Tories were going, and I really didn't like Brexit. I didn't like the nationalism, the patriotism, and I worried very much about the future under Johnson. And I regarded Corbyn as being something that we could live with and control if the only alternative to Corbyn was, was Johnson. So there's arguments for and against, but for me, what he has done since he took over has been brave, principled, and of course it contrasts with Johnson who potsed around when Dominic Cummings went to Durham, wouldn't take any action against him, whereas um, Starmer took action decisively against Rebecca Long Bailey and looks as if, and has taken decisive action against the small, against um, this morning, against admitting Corbyn to the Parliamentary Labour Party. So he has my support. Whether he can also be criticised is something that will become more apparent as time goes on. The second point was entryism, which we have commented upon. The third part was Mark Drakeford. Well, this is a little awkward for me, because when I went to speak, uh, Mark Drakeford came along and listened to me twice. And I approached him afterwards and said, look, would you do me a letter of recommendation? And the letter that he sent me, I use as a kind of calling card to anybody who wants to know who I am, because he wrote very favorably about me. So I personally don't have any of the angst about um, Mark Drakeford that others do, but I have to say, I don't know that much about him. On the anti-Semitism issue, he's been quite upfront, and he wants to involve me in more training in Wales. We'll have to see how that goes. Where he stands in relation to Corbyn's behaviour over the last few months, it may be Drakeford will have a different view. I hope so, but I can't be sure that that's the situation. Mm-hmm. Well, you and I are on different sides of the Brexit argument. I'm no great supporter of Boris Johnson. I found his behaviour for much <laughs> of this year extremely disappointing, I have to say. Um, yeah. And I, I've done many podcasts about the, his handling of the pandemic, which people can see on the website. But in terms of um, Jeremy Corbyn, I think the problem, not necessarily you had, but are, are people who sort of given the benefit of the doubt, so to speak, you, li- you lie down with dogs, you get fleas. At the end of the day, one cannot ignore that for all those years Jeremy Corbyn was in Parliament, first elected in 1983, the year I was born, for all those years Jeremy Corbyn was in Parliament, he was cozying up to Hamas and Hezbollah. You can't really give people like that the benefit of the doubt, can you? I don't know so much about Hezbollah. Hamas is a mixture of things, and I'm not embracing the Palestine liberation movement because many of the people within it are are reactionary. At the same time, I've borne in mind some articles that were written by Jonathan Friedland, admittedly a few years ago, when he said that there were quite a few Israelis who praised the mayors of some of the uh, Palestinian um, uh, towns and villages and that they had produced some people of quality. But the Hamas, to be in a situation where they're putting youngsters into the firing line, they're sending off the youngsters to with suicide bombers, they're shooting off rockets just to provoke the Israelis. 
I don't approve of the Israeli overreaction and I don't like what the way in which they've handled it, but I don't think Hamas have, Hamas have failed to produce men of leadership. If I can just draw a brief parallel, and I may have discussed this with you before. Um, it was amazing that you could see Ian Paisley and uh, McGuinness sh shaking hands and working together for the benefit of Northern Ireland. Mm. You know, the British realised they couldn't beat the IRA, and the IRA realised they couldn't beat the British. There was I have to correct one thing. There was never a public handshake between those two, but I do know what you mean. They were known as the Chuckle Brothers because they were getting yeah. on so well laughing in public together. And my understanding is their private and personal relationship in that period of time when they were power sharing was very good. Yeah, and that shows you what, what, what can be done. Hamas has failed to produce people like that. Mm. And... Um, I don't know enough about the individuals within the Hamas movement. It is quite a surprise and it needs to be taken on board that the Hamas leadership has not been replaced. It's still popular. It still has the support of the people in, 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 in Gaza. And they are the people the Israelis have to deal with. Israel, I understand where Israel's coming from. Security is their number one consideration. They're not going to put the future of Jewish people at risk after what happened in the Holocaust. They will retain control always, and they will not encounter any uh, uh, resistance to, to Israel's right to stay in control of its own people. Sometimes that produces very bad extreme right-wing reactions from Netanyahu and others. But generally speaking, the world has to pay a price for the fact that six million died. And six million died is summarized in the phrase, never again. And the Jewish people are absolutely one, inflexible, united. That whatever happens in the Middle East, the Jewish people must never be put at risk because they do not trust non-Jews to look after Jews. And who can say they're wrong? Mm, mm, exactly. Well, the thing about history is if you don't learn from it, you're, you're prone to repeating it, aren't you? That's, that's the big yeah. lesson about this. But in terms of Labour, okay, you touched on Mark Drakeford there and he sent you that decent letter after the work you did and, you know, you, you had a good personal relationship with him. But even before all this EHRC report came about, there were other instances of anti-Semitism in Labour. And here in Wales, we had a prominent example with Jenny Rathbone, who a member of the Welsh Assembly, which has since been renamed the Welsh Parliament in the last few months. She was investigated by the party internally within Labour after suggesting security fears of Jewish people. And she said this in a card, um, at a Cardiff synagogue could be in their own heads, to use her words. And that chimes with what you were just saying a moment ago about um, about you know, never again, so to speak, but her using the expression in their own heads. In November 2018, she was suspended from the Labour Party Assembly Group for six weeks, and the disciplinary process was dealt with by Labour at UK level rather than at Welsh level. They decided in February 2019 to give her a formal warning and to leave it at that. So that's how Labour reacted when it was dealt with internally at that time in the very last days of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. You know, it's one of the oddities of this whole era that uh, I actually spent time with Jenny Rathbone when I went to Wales. Hmm. I spoke at the Assembly. It was just the Labour MPs. and um, The Assembly Mark members or the MPs? Um... Or both? Yeah, I can't There were about 60 people. Well, it, it, would, have been, it would have been both if there were 60, because yes, that, that would yeah. be 29 Assembly members 
and about another 25-ish MPs at yeah. that time. So yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Yes, probably both. Um, and uh, uh, Drakeford was there and he introduced, he, he didn't introduce me, he, he got up and just said thank you at the end of the meeting. And then there was an interlude whilst um, we had a cup of tea and cake before I went off to the train station. And who was, who was deputed to look after me? Jenny Rathbone. Hmm. So I, I had the opportunity to meet and talk with her and she, she, she came across very well. I, I wondered uh, whether she was being genuine, sincere, whether she was holding back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then I've had encounters with the Jewish Voice for Labour as well. Mm. And some of their people are a bit extreme, are a bit provocative, uh, and I give them a wide berth. I don't refuse to have anything to do with them. I'm not one of those that excludes them from any, any opportunity, because I believe on this issue of anti-Semitism, you should always be working to try and bring people around to your point of view, even if they've been reasonably intransigent. Mm. But Jenny Rathbone, I, I spoke to and found to be okay. It takes me back to the Aberconwy meeting. The Jewish Voice to Labour wanted to appear on a platform with me, and I said no. I knew that that was not the right thing to do, and it would be frowned on by the JLM as well. As, as well as me not liking it, they wouldn't have liked it. Hmm. So I made it clear to the Aberconwy Labour Party, I would speak, I would take questions, there'd be a break, and I would leave. Hmm. And the second half of the meeting was given over to Jewish, Jewish Voice for Labour. They did put questions to me and I answered them, but I never shared a platform with them because I knew that wasn't the, I was going to say the kosher thing to do. It wasn't the respectable, it wasn't the respectable thing to do because I, I, I just could see it was too, it was too sensitive. It was too much of a hot potato. Rathbone, so, yeah, all I can say is I met him and got up with him. Yeah, what I'd say about Rathbone is, do, do you think that then this is a case of, okay, you found her personally pleasant and, and I'll, I'll, you know, I've been in the same room as her myself. I've never actually spoken to her, but we've attended events and I've seen her around and so forth. Do you think this is a case of education and she needs to un develop her understanding of the issues or do you think she is an anti-Semite? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question because I don't know her well enough. But I do say this, when you're dealing with training and education, you go in front of an audience, you hope your goal must be to win over people to your arguments but you do so in the aware being aware at the same time that there's bound to be some people in the audience who are not who are inflexible who are going to be anti-semitic in one way or another and you've got to allow for that mm. but you've got to try and take an attitude with most people let me explain why this whole thing about anti-semitism is so wrong let me tell you a little bit about the history let me talk to you about the jews let's show about the significance of kristallnacht how dislike can turn to hate can turn to the ovens of Dachau and Auschwitz there is a sequence of events and you have to go through a training process a lot of people do not understand enough about what's going on they've come to politics they've seen Israel and they don't like what they see in Israel but they only see a bit of Israel mm. you know I always make the point when I speak to people if I can just make it to you as well Marcus if I'm dealing with an audience, say there's 50, 60 people in the audience, and I'll say to them, look, some of you may be gay. Where would you feel safest as a gay in the Middle East? Would you like to go to Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia? Or would you be happier in Israel, which has the, gay, the biggest gay pride march outside of America? 
I said, if you're a woman looking to make way, make your progress in, in life and to, to climb the uh, ladder of success, do you think you stand more chance of doing it in Israel or do you think you could do it in any of the uh, m Muslim countries? And then I go on to say, and this is a knockout blow, I said, you've had this terrible incident with the killing of the Khashoggi, the, the journalist in Saudi Arabia. Can I tell you that Israel within the last 15 years has had two premiers and two presidents in prison for corruption mm. because they've got the rule of law. I said, you're going to hear some negative things about Israel. Yes, there are some negative things, but see the whole picture. Because if you want to understand the dynamic of Israel society, you need to have that for uppermost in your mind before you make judgments as to the nature of the Israeli state. Mm. Mm. And I think there's they're strong arguments to make. I'm not apologizing for Israel. I'm just saying, understand it in all. It does have the rule of law. It does have a lot of American aid as well. It does have an intolerance of people who throw bombs at it. And it does go into overkill. But it's not an apartheid state. It doesn't repress the Palestinians because their color is different or anything like that at all. Mm. I think with Israel, it begins and ends with security. And when you're so insecure that six million people died, and that's why the Holocaust experience is never far from the minds of any Jew. And we're not asking for sympathy, but we're saying to non-Jewish people, understand where we're coming from, because it has a lot to tell you about where we are today. Yeah, and in, in the time we've got left, I want to move the discussion on now a little bit to beyond Labour, because I'm afraid to say that anti-Semitism in British politics and in British public life is not confined to the Labour Party. Now, Welsh Nationalist Party Plaid Cymru, which has four of the 40 seats, um, or the Welsh seats in the House of Commons, is having a review into anti-Semitism, but it's doing it in-house by appointing Liz Savile-Roberts, the party's MP for Dwyvio Merioned, and the group leader in the House of Commons to conduct it. And it comes after the Board of Deputies of British Jews said it was concerned anti-Jewish anti prejudice is tolerated within Plaid Cymru. Now, this comes about Saha al-Faifi was initially suspended by Plaid Cymru in November last year, four days after she appeared in a party election broadcast, when it emerged she had made a series of anti-Semitic posts on social media five years earlier. She was readmitted to the party in February of this year, but there was further controversy in June of this year in relation to the death of George Floyd when she tweeted, if you wonder where these American cops trained, look no further than Israel. Oppression is one and the struggle is transitional. And the tweet prompted the Board of Deputies of British Jews to call for her expulsion from the party. But on the 8th of October, Plaid Cymru announced that Miss Al-Faifi would face no further action. And in the weeks since, so very recently, she has been approved as a list candidate for South Wales Central at the Welsh parliamentary elections due to be held in May next year. Now, to put that into perspective, in the Welsh Parliament, you've got 40 constituencies, and then there's, I think, Wales is split into four groups of regional lists, and they have a list candidate, so there's an element of proportional representation. She is highly unlikely to be elected, I'll say that now. Looking, I think she's fourth on the list in an area of Wales where Plaid Cymru isn't strong anyway. So it's highly unlikely she'll get elected, but the fact is she is on the list. Now, I'm afraid to say, Graham, that this is nothing new for Plaid Cymru. Its track record of anti-Semitism dates back to its co-founder, the playwright Saunders Lewis. 
whose writing was littered with anti-Semitic slurs. Uh, the phrase Hebrew snouts comes up, uh, which he used when referring to Jewish financiers. Uh, Alfred Mond was a favorite target of his. Of Hitler, uh, Saunders Lewis declared, at once he fulfilled his promise, a promise which was greatly mocked by the London papers months before that, to completely abolish the financial strengths of the Jews in the economic life of Germany. They were the words Saunders Lewis used. And Lewis remains more, well over 30 years after his death. I think he died in about 1984, 85-ish. He's still widely revered by the party today. As recently as 2015, the former party president, and that was the title they used to use for leader, Lord David Wigley, still very active in the House of Lords. He unveiled a plaque to Saunders Lewis um, and in, the, in his house in Penarth, where Saunders Lewis lived in later life. In the accompanying interview, he called for the character assassination, as he put it, of Saunders Lewis to end. Now, I have made aware to a number of Jewish friends and acquaintances, and even non-Jewish friends and acquaintances who've been involved in, uh, in exposing anti-Semitism, the extent of Plaid Cymru's grim history on this. What were your first thoughts, Graham, when you first learned about Saunders Lewis? Uh, I was quite astonished. I really was. I, I, I read that reference to his praise for Hitler. Um, and I was trying to find the exact words um, that, that were used. I've got them down here. I can't find them now as I talk to you, but I saw them before. They, they were incredible to think that somebody could, first of all, say that, and then secondly, remain to be regarded as the senior figure that he did until his death in the, in the 1980s. Mm. The praise that he, he, he foisted upon Hitler was unrestrained and would immediately, in my mind, condemn him as somebody uh, very much on the anti far, far anti-Semitic roots. So th there is a danger, and I'm a lawyer, that you don't ju ju jump to judgment too quickly. You ask to see all the facts before you reach a conclusion. But those words do put him in the wrong camp. Um, yeah. And I think when you come to talk about um, this lady and her comments about Israel, this is the kind of thing that does worry Jews. Whether it's true or not that Israel might have provided military training to America, I don't know whether there's any truth in that. But this is an aspect of Israel which is used to smear the whole Israel, Israeli country. Mm. Uh, any connection between uh, America uh, and Israel in question of police training, and I do not know if any of it is true. I've seen no evidence for it. It's part of the problem that it's gratuitous, gratuitously mentioned by Maxine Peake, then meant endorsed by Rebecca Long Bailey. And when Rebecca Long Bailey wrote her apology for using it it was a terrible apology mm. Mm. uh it never got to the heart of the matter and it would have worried people jewish and non-jewish people reading that to show that this is somebody who cannot be trusted with uh being exposed with the actual truth so i think i think the, the problem you've got graham is that it, it, what you find within the Plaid Cymru sect, now let, let's be clear about this, Plaid Cymru's membership is, depending, that they're, they're a little bit coy about it, we believe it's somewhere between 8,000 and 12,000 members. Now to put that into perspective, their counterparts in Scotland, the SNP, have 125,000 members. So we're talking about a very small party here. 
But nevertheless, they have got four of the 40 um, parliamentary seats in Wales, all of them in West and Northwest Wales. They don't even come close to winning elsewhere in Wales. But what you find is that it's as though Saunders Lewis's anti-Semitism, they talk about it as though it's a minor character flaw, like leaving your socks on the bedroom floor or leaving the toilet seat up. It's seen as, as a sort of minor thing and not all that important in the grand scheme of things. And I think that is utterly wrong. He was an anti-Semite and they weren't just isolated incidents. In his plays, in his writings, in his letters to newspapers, they were there. Um, and this penetrates to the modern era, Sahar Al-Faifi, the example of last year into this year. If she had made similar remarks about black people, she would have been booted out of the party, surely to goodness. And, and I can't disagree with you, and I don't want to disagree with you, Marcus, because if what she said is true, there's no way she should be a candidate. She should be condemned for what she said, because what lies behind the expression of that point of view is a whole host of prejudices, which are anti-Jewish and anti-racist and anti-democratic as well. These are not the kind of people who should be elected to any, par any, any parliament. To have the freedom to say these things in the present era after everything that we've been through is quite reprehensible. You know, I always say, if you want to make a criticism of Israel, make it. Make it. Criticise any country. Make it. Talk about the, 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 the buildings in the construction in the occupied territories. Talk about uh, Sabra and Shatila in 1982. There are things that have, have happened in Israel's history that are very, very unattractive. There's a whole host of other things mm. um, that, 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 that have happened that have been incredibly positive and encouraging. So it's, you, you, you look at it in, in the whole, but when people only emphasize those horrible anti-Jewish digs when they make a comment, and that was the reference to Floyd, it's just uh, a warning sign to all Jews, watch out, you've still got a big fight ahead of you. Don't relax, don't relent, be on your guard. There is still anti-Semitism to be confronted. So that's oh, the attitude that I feel, and I think others do as well. I, I think so, yes. And in terms of the scale of the problem, in terms of, uh, of Wales and, and Plaid Cymru's influence, I've just given you an example of just how small a party it is in terms of membership and in terms of uh, where they actually win seats. Um, the problem is that whilst their, their support base is mainly in West and Northwest Wales, I'll explain the problem as this. And it's this, an elitism built into Welsh society that can be traced back to Saunders Lewis himself. And by that, I mean, in October 1933, the University of Wales Council, which had been lobbying for more Welsh, broad, Welsh language broadcasting, appointed a 10-man council to press the case with the BBC which included Saunders Lewis and his fellow Welsh nationalist, W.J. Griffith. BBC Director General John Reith described the committee as the most unpleasant and unreliable people with whom it has been my misfortune to deal. Yet the committee gained ever more influence on the BBC in Wales and appointments of staff at BBC Wales was delegated to the committee by the corporation. And as the newspapers of the time noted, appointees seem to be primarily drawn from the families of the Welsh-speaking elite, including the son of a professor of Welsh and the offspring of three archdruids, by which they mean the gorset of the bards of the Eisteddfod. Um, and Lewis's, Saunders Lewis's campaigning succeeded in cementing a strong Welsh nationalist influence at BBC Wales that continues to this very day. 
The BBC's Welsh Advisory Council was established in 1946, which included several Plaid Cymru supporters, one of whom was Lewis's successor as Plaid Cymru president, Gwynvor Evans. And so the seeds were sown. This isn't a conspiracy. You can follow this trail all the way down. For example, Aniron Talfan Davis was one of the early heads of programmes at BBC Wales. His son, Geraint Talfan Davis, was controller of BBC Wales for 10 years from 1990. Geraint Talfan Davis's son, Rodri Talfan Davis, is the current director of BBC Wales, having been appointed at the age of 40 in 2011, despite having never made a TV or radio programme in Wales in his life. And there's a mm-hmm. website run by Paddy French, um, the, in, the former investigative journalist for The Times and also for HTV Wales, uh, called Rebecca Television. It, it's a website he runs. And what you see is that in the intervening years between Geraint and Rodri Talfan Davis, uh, the, head, the head of BBC Wales was Mena Richards, a close friend of the Talfan Davis family. Um, I think she's actually the godmother of um, Rodri Talfan Davis. And yet, since leaving BBC Wales, both Geraint Talfan Davis and Mena Richards have held a number of prominent directorships of Welsh companies and organisations, including Welsh Water, though there's no suggestion that BBC Wales has been influenced by these connections. Uh, Geraint Talfan Davis was head of the Wales Stronger in Europe campaign in the lead up to the 2016 referendum on EU membership. A particularly absurd example came in mid-2018 when Rhiannad Richards, she was a former BBC Wales journalist, she left to become chief executive of Plaid Cymru, a special advisor to the former party leader, Yian Wynne-Jones. She then returned to BBC Wales as editor of Plaid Cymru, um, uh, sorry, as head of Radio Cymru, I should say. That's the immoral equivalent in England would be to see someone like Alistair Campbell or Andy Coulson being appointed at the top job at Radio 4. Yes, that's far-fetched, but the equivalent has happened in Wales. And what I'm getting at, Graham, is we have something in Wales called the Krakak, which is a very small pool of middle-class Welsh-speaking people who are largely sympathetic to Welsh nationalism, who move from one well-paid job to the next in the media, the arts, the civil service, and the higher education sectors. And BBC Wales is dominated by Welsh-speaking people who are sympathetic to Welsh nationalism, Reach PLC newspapers in Wales are the same nowadays. They didn't used to be, mind you, but they've taken control of the cockpit there. So you see, the mainstream media in Wales will not rigorously hold Plaid Cymru to account on anti-Semitism or anything else. And there are only about 200,000 people in Wales who use Welsh as their daily living language. The crack set who dominate the Welsh media, arts, civil service, higher education, is far smaller still. Not all Welsh speakers are part of the Krakat by any means. But Saunders Lewis is still widely revered by this small section of Welsh society. I've seldom heard anyone condemn him. Now, to go back to 2001, there was an HTV Wales series called Tin Gods. And they did an episode on Saunders Lewis. And bearing in mind, this was made by the Welsh media. It was utterly scathing. And, and, you know, HTV Wales, as it was at the time, is not immune to crack-ack influence by any means. But somehow a a good job was done on this programme. The historian Tim Williams said, I think there's been a self-censorship by the Welsh intelligentsia. I think there's been ignorance by the Welsh intelligentsia. I think there's been a general cultural denial that anybody who espoused the cause of Welsh patriotism could be an anti-liberal, anti-democratic reactionary. And the one leader of Plaid Cymru who who I do have a little bit of time for, who's actually no longer a member of the party, was their leader in the early 1980s, Lord David Ellis Thomas. Um, He he tried to move... David Ellis Thomas, in the House of Lords now, 
and about to stand down from the Welsh Parliament. He is not really a Welsh nationalist as such. He believes in an autonomous Wales, but he, he doesn't, I, I think, he, well, he does support the royal family. He, he does believe in sort of an autonomous Wales within the United Kingdom structure. But he said in the programme, he said that Saunders Lewis was lousy as a politician, lousy as a writer, but a good Catholic. And he tried to move Plaid Cymru away from the extremism of Saunders Lewis and Gwynford Evans during his short time as leader. Sadly, he wasn't there for long enough to become leader. He was then succeeded by David Wigley. And I just quoted David Wigley, who remains a fan of Saunders Lewis to this day. But you see, Graham, how we've got this sort of cowed culture in Wales. You would not hear anyone saying what I just said about Saunders Lewis and his track record of anti-Semitism in BBC Wales or in any newspaper owned by Reach PLC. And I think that is very dangerous, Graham. Um, well, first of all, you know more about Wales, obviously, than I do, and I hesitate to talk in detail about it, but I'm quite sure from the brief investigation I did prior to coming onto your programme, uh, I'm satisfied that how you, how you report it is exactly how it is. So wh how, how do you deal with it? I, I just think what this anti-Semitism issue in the, in, in, in the UK has taught us is that you have to have no, no, no compromise with, with extremists. You have to police the boundaries. Don't be complacent because it can poison robust institutions. The Labour Party didn't see what was happening or the anti, the, the Jewish movement didn't see what was happening in the trade union movement and on the campuses. They were behind and not ahead. And th there's no justification for being slow and discouraging. I think you've got to be on the front foot. It's very easy to say that, be on the front foot, because you have to be an activist to do it. You, you, you do it because you're not, you're not afraid to say what you think about, about, about all of this. And I think if there's any lingering examples of extreme Welsh nationalism and nationalism that actually amounts to prejudice and racism, then uh, I think that you, the experience of what has happened in the UK in, in recent months with regards to Corbyn shows you that your best position is to be on the front foot, raising it and confronting it because anything less than that gives the opportunity uh, for um, wrong instincts to come to the sur surface. Now, you may say, but it's a small problem. Is there a danger that we make a small problem into a big problem? That's a judgment call. You can always tolerate a few bad things, a few bad apples that happens in life. But if you sense that by being inactive, you're actually allowing wrong things to develop, then people like you, like-minded people, have got to go on the front foot and expose and bring it out and confront it. Because that's the lesson personally that I've learned from what's been going on, taken place in, 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 in the UK. And I've had to rethink some of my own attitudes on that. Mm. But I realize there's no question, there is no substitute for going onto the front foot and confronting racism at every opportunity. And I think that's what the Jewish leadership did in by taking this matter to the commission and has convinced the commission of the correctness of the case that the uh, Jews made about anti-Semitism in the UK. So, you know, full marks eventually for the Jewish movement for taking that issue, that action. They would have been dis discouraged to, from doing it because Jews by and large don't like to make a fuss. And secondly, full marks for having convinced a neutral party of their case. 
I mean, remember the commission were nothing more than a judge. They were looking at it afresh. All the evidence was marshaled, put in front. I would say if there is any similarity, if there's any lesson to learn from what happened in the UK in relation to what is ongoing in Wales, maybe that's the example that you have to learn, to be on the front foot and step by step, never hold back from going forward. Well, in, in relation to the Al Fifi case, what I explained what had gone on to uh, a, another Jewish anti-Semitism campaigner, he said, and I said that, look, Clive Cummings, they've got Liz Savile Roberts carrying out this inquiry into anti-Semitism. He said, yeah, it sounds as though Clive Cymru is going through its denial phase by having someone from inside rather than the EHRC looking into it. Would you say that's where Clive Cymru is going through its denial phase? Because it does sound like that, doesn't it? I, I don't know enough about the lady that you actually mentioned, Liz Savile Roberts. I've heard good things about her. There is a danger that it's not independent. Mm. It would be better to go outside and have people completely untouched by this argument with no positions to defend, to mm. look into it, because their conclusions will be more readily accepted across the board than somebody who's from Plaid Cymru, even though the lady concerned may be a paragon of virtue and objectivity and judicial discretion. Mm. So my instinct is that you do better if you go outside than you stick inside, but mm. you'll have to take it in stages. i give you something. I would love to wake up one morning and hear Chakrabarti being interviewed and say, I got it so wrong. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so humiliated. The report that I prepared for the Labour Party on anti-Semitism, I, I, I look back on it and I just can't believe that that is exactly what I produced. I would love to hear her say it because I think until she says that, she's never going to be taken seriously. And yet she was such a good person. Mm, yeah, she's, done, she's sadly undone a lot of the good work she did, particularly at Liberty with her actions in more recent times. I think you think you've got a good point on that. In terms of anti-Semitism in wider society, I, I think back to an incident in 2007 and there's a, a guy, he's, he's, some of his podcasts are on our platforms here as well, Johnny Gould, who does the Johnny Gould yeah. Um, podcast. I was doing some work at the company he ran at the time, Sports Media in London, and there were several Jewish staff in the office that day. And while we were eating our lunch, uh, one of his staff mentioned, and I was 23 years of age at the time, and I, I wasn't as, as fully aware of the issues around anti-Semitism as I am now, but um, this member of staff said that there was a golf club somewhere in the home counties, I can't remember where, that had an unofficial policy of not admitting Jewish members. And I was taken a little bit aback by this. You know, I thought this is extraordinary. This is going on in the early 21st century. And, but then as my understanding has developed, as I've got older, I'm, I'm less surprised to hear that. Now, for example, Michael Grade, who's Jewish, um, he tells a story of in the 1980s, there was an incident at Muirfield Golf Club. Now, that, that's the golf club that um, was told it can't stage the Open Championship again because of its policy on not admitting women members. Uh, it's yes. stuck in a different era. Now, Michael Grade uh, tells a story. He was invited to Muirfield in the 1980s as a guest um, by the former head of Scottish television, Sir William Brown. And I think Michael Grade, this would have been the era when he was in charge of Channel 4, I think. However, he had to fill in a form, Michael Grade did, um, about you know, his name, address, which golf club he was a member of. And he wrote Coombe Hill in Kingston-upon-Thames, which is known for having a predominantly Jewish membership. 
and the invite was then allegedly withdrawn. And when uh, Michael asked Sir William Brown if there was a reason for the withdrawal, according to Grade, the reply was, you know why, Michael. So this sort of subtle anti-Semitism, if you like, that was in the 1980s. And I gave the example of the story people told me uh, in Johnny Gould's office in 2007. This sort of thing is still around, isn't it? In, particularly in the golf fraternity. Um, I don't know how much it's around in the um, golf fraternity. If I've got a minute or two, I can tell you some interesting stories about it because I'm very involved in golf. My, my golf club is one of those that you might identify as a Jewish golf club. But if you ask yourself, well, why do you have a Jewish golf club? Because the answer is in the 1950s, Jews couldn't be, could not get into non-Jewish golf clubs. Mm. Mm. They, could, they, were, they, were, they were refused. A, a friend of mine who was a very good golfer was a few years back, uh, trying to, went along for an interview to South Hearts, which is one of the very best courses in North London. Hmm. And the person who was sponsoring said to him, listen, tomorrow, if you're asked what religion you are, what will you say? He says, I'm not going to come to the interview. He knew what he meant. If you mention you're Jewish, you won't get in. So don't mention you're Jewish. Now, I hasten to add, things have moved on at South Hearts and it's now much more open club and it's even had a Jewish captain. So for that was... I'm giving you an account of something in the past. But if you ask the question, where did Jewish golf clubs come from? They came into existence because Jews wanted to play golf and couldn't play in non-Jewish clubs, so they set up their own. Mm. Now, in our club, uh, I've got a very good friend of mine who has sponsored the development of um, over-60s society within our club, which makes a point of playing with all the non-Jewish clubs in the local area because he wants to promote better relations between the Jewish clubs and the non-Jewish clubs. And it's quite funny, actually, because all the non-Jewish clubs love to come to a Jewish club because the food is better. <laughs> <laughs> they, tell us, they said when the name the list goes up, you're playing at Hartsbourne, this is the list is full up quicker than any other match that we have away. I said, why do you like us? He said, yeah, we like you, but we like your food as well. Well, we well, joke well, about it. The well, anti-Semitism well, has been eased because hmm. we're, initiatives have been taken to break down the barriers. Yeah, well, well it, that, that sort of, well, any form of anti-Semitism has no place in the 21st century. But I, as I say, I was taken a little bit aback when I was first made aware that it exists in the golfing fraternity when I was in Johnny's office in 2007 and one of the staff told that story. But again, Michael Gray told that story about what happened at Muirfield in the 1980s. And like I say, the story in Johnny's office was only in 2007, so only 13 years ago. This sort of thing, it must still be going on, surely, that, that there are some clubs, they won't write it in their constitution, but they're reluctant to accept Jewish members. This is still going on in the 21st century. I find that absolutely extraordinary, Graham. I don't know how much it's actually going on. Uh, Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, you cut out for a sec there. Carry Sorry. On. The, 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 the two reasons. First of all, I think things have become more liberal on this question of uh, Jews and non-Jews. There's a greater willingness, um, Jewish schools and non-Jewish schools, and uh, uh, Jews mix much, much more, live in non-Jewish areas as well. It's, it's, it's moved on from the days of the 50s when Jews were much more within their own community. Hmm. Uh, and I also think there's another factor in it, which is that all golf clubs need subscriptions and they'll take money from anybody. Hmm. So whether it's a Jew or a non-Jew, if it's another thousand pounds, it's something that is very valuable. 
But make no mistake, the initiative that my club took uh, through this good friend of mine to promote links with all the local Jewish clubs has done wonders. The, meet, the, the, the events that we have, it's the highlight of our golfing, golfing week, playing competitive matches against non-Jewish clubs and getting to know the people over a period of time and it's it's mutual we go they come to us we go to them so mm. there are ways of breaking it down you know you can there, there are uh, pockets of, of of prejudice and i there's also what you might call soft anti-semitism you come across it in many places i'll just give you an example of uh, michael atherton who's a very respected cricketer and journalist wrote an article about an MCC meeting which was considering a proposal to purchase land from the MCC to build flats on but at the same time put a large sum of money into the coffers of the MCC hmm. and he happened to mention that the proposers of this motion to proceed with this property development um, were from northwest London hmm. so why is he mentioning northwest London hmm. Mm. He was mentioning Northwest London because he was mentioning that they were Jewish. Mm. That's one of the soft examples of which uh, somebody wrote to him afterwards saying, I didn't quite understand. What did you mean when you mentioned Northwest London? He never got a reply. Mm. Now, uh, funny thing is, Michael Atherton lives in Radlett, which is a, a, an area populated by a large number of Jewish people. And he sends his kids to schools where there's a lot of Jewish people. So maybe... This is all historical, but it was still interesting that he felt he could put into an article that these, he wouldn't have said if they came from Surrey or if they came from Yorkshire or if they came from Westminster, but Northwest London, he was passing a message. Is this not the case then of the difference between blatant anti-Semitism, where it's really in your face, and subtle anti-Semitism. Now, Michael Atherton, former England captain, he then became a commentator for Channel 4, and for the last 15 years he's been with Sky, widely respected for both his commentaries and his writing in, in uh, the, the higher-end newspapers as well. Is this a, a case that he needs to be receive some sort of education about this, or there's a, a subtlety there, you know, believing stereotypes about Jews being wealthy businessmen and the sort of Fagin Oliver Twist type caricatures i'm not saying he is an anti-semite i don't think he is but is this a case that people who make those sort of subtle conclusions there is a need for education there yeah i don't think michael Atherton's in any way anti-semitic it was just an example of something that can happen i i i, I just think that we're dealing with corbyn and you're dealing with fundamental issues such as anti-semitism within the labor party this is really hot stuff it's really topical news and it's something which is uh, headlines and it's something which affects everybody then you drop down a level and you say to yourself well is there still prejudice and the answer of course is yes there's prejudice against all kinds of people isn't there why should the jews be different there is a historical background to it it does go back in centuries and it is reflected in culture as i said those um, shylock and shakespeare wrote about it fagin is an example we always refer to and there have been instances of prejudice against the Jews over the years, as indeed there's prejudice against others. We're a democratic society, but we're not a perfect society. But what you don't do is to elevate to the point of anti-Semitism each, each and every example of moderate prejudice. 
that's not the right way to deal with it. That is training and that is education. And you win far more by embracing people with the opposite views than you do by isolating them and calling them names. Is there so, a mentality yeah. that um, anti-Semitism is sort of the lesser racism, so to speak? It's, it's, anti-Semitism is much more than racism. You know, racism, how would you describe racism? Probably, simply, it's a question of colour. You oppose people because of their race, and race is determined by the kind of colour you are. Mm. Um, now, um, Jews are mixed colours. Mm. The people don't re realise that. I mean, I know <laughs> um, Muhammad Ali always used to say, why is, why, why is Jesus a nice white boy with blue eyes? <laughs> mm. But um, the Jews, uh, Jews come from two main areas. One is Eastern Europe, Ashkenazi, where they are white, they're Russian, they're Polish, they're German. But other Jews come from the Middle East and carry the, 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 the complexion of people from the Middle East. So they're, yeah. they're, they're, and there are also Jews that come from Ethiopia. So Paul Johnson in his book, The History of the Jews, he said it's very difficult to define the Jews. He says they're not a race because they don't all appear the same. He says they're not a nation because they don't all go to Israel. There's more living outside Israel than there is in Israel, he says. And um, uh, they're not religion. They're not a religion because only a few of them go to synagogue every Saturday. More of them don't go. He mm. says it's very difficult to define the Jews. He was being a bit provocative because there is a way in which you can define the Jews that brings all these things together. And it begins actually with how people define the Jews rather than how the Jews define themselves. And the Jews have often been defined by prejudice and, pre and, and more prejudice. And, you know, I always say to people who complain about this group of this religious uh, part of the Jewish community and that religious part won't speak. I said, when you landed at Auschwitz, no one said, now, which kind of, what kind of a Jew are you? Are you a reformed Jew, a united Jew? Are you a, a pro-Israeli Jew, a pro-Zionist Jew? You were Jewish and you were put into the guest chambers for nothing more than the fact that you were Jewish. And that experience, <laughs> we all come back to regularly. But, yeah, I, I, uh, I understand, I understand why, why you're saying all that and, and the valid points you've made. But what I'm really getting at here, is there a mentality among some in the Labour Party and implied Cymru and elsewhere in society that in some way anti-Semitism, there's a sort of mindset among some people, I think, that anti-Semitism is not quite as bad as racism. And I don't accept that for a second because it's every bit as abhorrent. But there are some people that seem to be a mentality that anti-Semitism is not quite as bad. Do you know what I'm saying by that? Yes, yes. I, I understand what, what you're saying, because racism is a very inflammatory word. And um, we've, we've seen a lot in relation to black-white issues and prejudice, uh, Windrush, etc. So much, so many examples. You've got Lewis Hamilton, you've got... Um, people complaining about the chairman of the FA. It's an ever-present factor in life. And then you come to anti-Semitism and you say, is this just the Jewish people? The prejudice against Jews comes from a different example. It's not race. It's not a racist issue. It's an issue to do with the, uh, um, uh, the way in which overall, over all the centuries, Jewish people, non-Jewish people have looked at Jewish people. And in many occasions, Jews have been embraced They've got on well with people. They've lived side by side. In other instances where times have been bad, incidents have happened, Jews have been at the wrong end of prejudice uh, and of violence. So the issue of anti-Semitism relates to a whole group of people 
who were defined in part by their race, in part by their religion, and in part by their nationality and their appearance. Mm. But it's different from racism. And I think uh, some of the training that I've done in London recently has been to draw a distinction between race and anti-Semitism because it is quite different. When you talk about anti-Semitism, you're talking about tropes, aren't you? You think about the kind of comments that we criticize people for. They control the world, you know? Mm. Uh, they're money-minded. Um, uh, Jews are forever seeking, uh, pre presenting themselves as, as victims, but they uh, actually want to control the world. So you get uh, generalizations about the Jews that aren't generalizations about uh, Ugandans or Indians or people from Hong Kong. They're defined by historical circumstance, but over the years, the way in which the Jews have been defined is by a whole host of historical experiences, which has, has at its heart of age long attitude towards Jews, which carries elements of bigotry, prejudice, and concludes with the phrase anti-Semitism. So by all means, fight anti-Semitism. It's the obligation to do it. We, you know, most Jews will look at the six million that died in, in, in Auschwitz, Dachau, Buchenwald, and the rest and say, I'm not going to allow this to be repeated again. I'm going to stand firm and fight. And I think they have to, but I think it's much more than a question of race. Which brings me on to the final point I want to make as we come towards the end now. And that is in relation to the year we've had, 2020, the whole George Floyd business. And we've seen up and down this country and indeed around the world, there's, um, for example, Sadiq Khan has said that we're reviewing the street names in London. We don't want um, places named after slave traders. And there's a review going on there. I know similar instances in Liverpool have happened as well. Uh, in Bristol, we've seen the tearing down of the Edward Colston statue. And there's examples of this everywhere. Now, why I'm mentioning this now is that here in Cardiff, we, it takes you, what, less than a minute to, work, to walk from the Welsh Parliament building to Roald Dahl Place, which is an open space in Cardiff Bay, um, a, a basin-type area where there, there's food and drink and everything like that and entertainment's laid on in the summer. Roald Dahl was an out-and-out anti-Semite, a tremendous children's writer, a tremendous imagination. His stories, he's been dead 30 years now, his stories live on and entertain future generations. But Roald Dahl, well, there's two things about it. One, he undoubtedly treated his children very badly, first of all. And second, his writing, not so much his children's writing, but his other writing is littered with examples of anti-Semitism. If we're gonna have a review into place names, which we are doing up and down the United Kingdom and the way in which we revere these people. Surely this has to extend to anti-Semitism. Why are we revering Roald Dahl? That is one example, because Roald Dahl Plus was only built in the 1990s. It's relatively recent. It happened at the time of the redevelopment of Cardiff Bay. Surely we need to think about these things, Graham. Well, it's culture. It's culture. Uh, and if there is anti-Semitism, then it, it, it exists across the board. And, and in many, many different areas. And you've picked on one person who's well known to the Jewish community as being anti-Semitic. I'm reminded of it every time I flick my TV programs and I see tales of the unexpected on television. That's his program, that's his books. He was a very skillful writer, a very big entertainer, but he was a bigot. He was prejudiced, he was anti-Semitic. 
And I, I just think this whole thing with um, the Black Lives Movement matters is such a, a big opportunity to look again at things that we've taken for accept, accepted without question on a whole host of areas. So for example, now you're seeing more emphasis uh, with black newscasters, black uh, 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 sports people taking over uh, dominant positions for more football managers who are black, etc., etc. A lot of the prejudices that have governed the operation of our liberal democratic capitalist state are being reviewed because they do conceal a whole host of prejudices which unless you are part of the prejudiced community you don't sense feel and protest about in the same way uh, and this is this will be a matter for individual jews don't think for a moment the black lives movement hasn't been discussed around the table and jewish people have got different views on it the jews are split you've got left-wing jews you've got right-wing jews you've got prosperous jews you've got poor jews Jews are a mixed bag, mm. but on this question that you 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 refer to a role dull, um, personally as a Jew, I would be very keen to see that testament to him taken down because of what he represents, uh, and provoke promote a discussion about the kind of heroes we should have in the modern twenty first century. It's a very very big question. Who do we want to uphold? Doesn't mean I mean the assumption is that people of money are exploitative but i always think to myself one of the big mistakes labor makes is it doesn't embrace capitalists with a great sense of social obligation you know one of the best capitalists i can think of was the former chairman of blackburn rovers i think his name was jack marshall i'm not sure was it jack walker jack walker thank yeah. you thank you I happened to go to Blackburn for a meeting and there's a statue of Jack Walker. Now, this is a man who made money in Blackburn, a lot of money, but he put his money back into the town, put it into the football club. And one day Blackburn Rovers with a great history in soccer actually won the league title, as you'll remember. I remember Alan it very well. Shearer, yeah. Shearer and Sutton and all of them. It was a wonderful moment. I think Kenny Dalgleish was the manager for that. He season. was. He was. Yeah. It was such an achievement. But what an achievement for a, a, an avowed capitalist who wanted to put something back into the community. There are a lot of capitalists like that who should be celebrated. I'm not talking about people who buy influence with money. The slave traders who've been put up, uh, had statues put up. Uh, although I understand that some of these slave owners did try to restore their reputation or retrieve their reputation by putting money into the local community. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a, a big, you're, you're touching on a much bigger question, and it's a very interesting um, question, Marcus, which is how do we assess who we want our children to grow up believing are the heroes in order to guide the kind of people they want to become in the next generations. It's a very, very big question. I happened to tweet today, I tweet a lot on football, and I noticed that in 1916, today in 1916, Hague finally called off the first Battle of the Somme after a million people had been killed and injured. And mm. I just thought to myself, is there a statue to Field Marshal Haig somewhere in London? Is mm. he heralded as a great general? It's a matter for review. You yeah, have to look yeah. at people in different generations. But yeah, it, generally, it's, it's your, a, your, your point is it's wider than Roald Dahl. Yeah, it's, it's a complex question, and, and there's a huge discussion that needs to take place. But it's just 
with all that's gone on with Edward Colston in Bristol and various yeah. other slave traders, I haven't heard Roald Dahl's name put into this narrative. And I, I, to me, it's a source of embarrassment that less than one minute's walk from the Welsh Parliamentary Building, you've got this sort of shrine to Roald Dahl, if you like. I don't think it's acceptable mm -hmm. in this day and age. That's how I feel. Mm -hmm. Well, Graham, you've been a fascinating guest. Um, before we go, you're involved in anti-Semitism training. Did you want to say a little bit more about that? And perhaps if people want to contact you and, and hire you to give talks, how do they go about it, please? Um, well, I, I love to train. I love to train on anti-Semitism because I think there's a lot of work to do to save the left from anti-Semitism. <laughs> I don't want to sound too biblical about that. Um, but uh, Graham at grahamperry.eu is probably the best way to get in touch with me. Graham at grahamperry.eu. Let me have your question, your query, and I'll certainly respond to you because I do like going out and training, especially on anti-Semitism. And if I can just give a plug for myself, Mark, because we haven't even talked about it, there's two strings to my bow. One is anti-Semitism, and of course the other is China. Mm. I regard myself as one of the best um, people to interpret the significance of China's development over the last uh, uh, 40 years. It's amazing. And uh, there's a lot of talking and writing I do on that as well. Well, yeah, because one of our podcasts, uh, we did a podcast some months ago where you talked about China in some depth, and that's still available on all our platforms. So if you haven't listened to it, that's a fascinating discussion as well. Well, Graham, it's been a fascinating discussion here today. It's a huge issue. I don't think we've covered absolutely everything by any means, but um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Do keep up the good work, and we look forward to catching up with you again sometime soon. Thank you, Graham Perry. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Marcus. I found it very enjoyable. Take care.